Well, we've been practicing for a good day now. I uh, would like to say something coming from the teaching of the Buddha. I have um, been quite pragmatic and psychological in my approach so far with meditational instruction being in the foreground. I would like today or tonight uh, just to say a few words that give larger context for um, our practice and that try to do justice to uh, the theme of our retreat on being with others and uh, about noble companionship on the path. I know from your interview sheets that many of you have a long-term association with teachings and meditation practice and you will be very aware that one of the basics in Buddhist teaching is the the taking of refuges. Now these refuges are They're not equally popular. Um, the refuge of the Dhamma, you know, the teaching seems very straightforward. People quite easily take to that, you know, profound wisdom teaching coming down, elaborate oral tradition handed down, commented upon, practiced by dedicated contemplatives, uh, great yogis, siddhas, mahasiddhas, arhats, alohans. Whatever, whatever there are in the uh, practice lineages throughout the ages, that seems to be straightforward. Yeah? The encapsulation on a profound teaching on the nature of reality, that, when understood, frees the human heart. That seems something one can take easily refuge to. Certainly, it was the case for me. Taking refuge with the Buddha... Hmm. Not a straight winner. Straight, yeah. Kind of. Who is this? What is this? Aren't we? Aren't we experiencing the freedom to believe here, or the freedom from having to believe? That's certainly how it was for me twenty-five years ago. So take refuge to what? It's taken quite a while for me to actually come to terms with that refuge and actually seeing the, the power in this. Not taking refuge with a historical figure, not taking refuge with a bronze statue, but taking refuge with that capacity within myself that is capable of freedom, happiness, enlightenment. And the taking of refuge as a continual affirmation to value this part most of other parts in myself. Affirm that there is something in me that is capable of total freedom. That's big. Took some doing to actually acknowledge that there is such, such a part in myself. Profound ability to understand and by that understanding to free the heart. That's a big thing. The third refuge was even less apparent. The refuge of Sangha is, well, it took some clarification what that exactly is. The term Sangha is actually quite ubiquitous in the Buddhist scriptures. Sometimes sometimes it's the monks, the bhikkhu sangha, or the bhikkhuni sangha for that matter, the nuns. Um, if we take refuge to the sangha, the refuge is to those people who have gained realization. The term means community. 
in fact, it's not exclusively to a community of monks or so, uh, or even people for that matter. Uh, there, there are communities of deer in the Pali Canon. Yeah, there's the Miga Sangha, which is a community of deer, or other animals are mentioned. So Sangha is a term that um, needs a bit of elaboration. In the refuges, it's very clear. A refuge, if we take refuge to Sangha, is those people who have attained a degree of realization that is called Aryan, that is called noble, that is called supramundane. People who have had irreversible transformations in their hearts and who are destined within short time say, a maximum of seven short lifespans <laughs> to attain liberation, complete liberation. Yeah. That's for the cheapest uh, version of uh, Sangha, of Arya Sangha, the cheapest version of stream enterer. So, these people are men and women, robed, and not necessarily robed uh, beings who have attained liberation. Beings that have gone before, who have left us their practices, their testimonials, their teachings, their lineages, and beings of the present. So Arya Sangha is something that is holding the highest aspirations. And it makes clear when we affirm this as a refuge, it makes clear that we can benefit from associating with people who have understood something. That's, I think, the bottom line. The term Sangha is used today for any community of practitioners, men, women, ordained. It's crucial that you understand yourself to be part of such a Sangha. Sangha is something you do. It's not something you long for and you berate the fact that you think it's not happening. The major thing about Sangha to be understood is it's an activity. Don't think of community as a noun. Think of communing as a verb. It's something you you bring yourself in association with. It's something you engage. It's, in short, the relational domain of our lives. Sangha is something you create. It's something you put effort into. Now the whole bottom line of such a community, the whole bottom line of Sangha is the fact that we are profoundly relational creatures. We learn to know each other through relating. We not just learn to know each other through relating, we learn to know ourselves through relating. This may be less known. But the the whole attempt to relate to others is an attempt to understand more deeply what's happening to us. Now try for a moment, just half a minute, try to this <clears throat> try to see whether you can imagine if you subtract all you have learned and all you have received from others, try to subtract that from your life and try to think of what's left of your life. If you have to discount everything that you have learned from others, everything you have uh, received from others. Can you do that? Do you get a vision of what is left of yourself without the doing of others, without the presence, without their interest in you? I confess if I do that in my life or with my life or what I remember of this life, uh, then there isn't really much left. It is very hard for me to come, to arrive at something that um, that is left if I subtract all that I have received from others. It's very clear to me that who I am and what I am doing, my 
skills and certainly my happiness, all this is very directly due to the presence of other people who have taken care of me, who have taken interest of me, who have um, criticized me, who have looked after me, who have befriended me. These people have been very crucial right from the word go. My experience of school was primarily a social experience. Yeah. I remember going to kindergarten. I felt this was going to widen my horizon. Not because they had new toys, but because from the rather small world of me and my sister and um, my parents, uh, suddenly the horizon seemed to widen and there were other kids, many other kids in fact. And they had parents and brothers and sisters, so suddenly my horizon, my social horizon expanded with one... uh, one day, one change in my life, and suddenly I was part of something bigger. And throughout my life that has happened in many miraculous ways. I have uh, spent over 20 years in monastic communities, which were uh, a large communal, left a large communal impression on my mind and on my heart. People to whom I am grateful people who have put up with me, people who have taught me, uh, people who have uh, looked after me, have given me tools in in many ways, tools with myself, tools in my meditation, tools in the teaching, have given me very practical skills uh, from learning how to sew my own robes, down to a few more sophisticated things or things I hope I have brought it farther than uh, my sewing skills seem to <laughs> have come. So I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for what I have received from others. And I, in turn, have spent much of my time long before I joined the monastic community. And certainly while I was in the monastic community, I have in turn given much of my energy and my vitality and my intelligence to group living, to the needs of a group, to to the needs of others. So there is no doubt in my heart that the amount of happiness I experience is directly connected to the happiness of the people around me. I have no doubt that I cannot be a happy person if people around me are miserable. But there are some profound ethical uh, implications coming with that understanding. It means relationship is a basic given. Unless you tell me otherwise, I assume relationship to be a given. I assume that we are in relationship um, and that human beings are doing rela- relationship as a normal expression of how they uh, go about their business. If I look for that um, conviction of mine in the Buddha's teaching, I can see that the Buddha states what he calls noble companionship or admirable companionship. He states that this is at the heart of Sangha, at the heart of community. Now this is a strange statement to make because... Much of Buddhism, at least as we uh, receive it in the West, uh, seems to be about solitary practice, individual work, quiet, lonesome hours on my meditation cushion in in countless retreats. And um, that may have something to do with the, the, uh, the spectacles I put on. You see, we come from a highly individualized Western culture, that's the big thing on the, on the shrine of the uh, Occidental culture. There is the autonomous subject, yeah. self-determined, uh, sometimes self-willed, and uh, striving for individual autonomy, both in his understanding, in his judgment, in the pursuit of his actions and his freedom, in the pursuit of his pleasures, um, 
there is a strongly individualistic bias in our culture. That has a few great advantages and it has a few great drawbacks. The advantages are clear. It makes us capable of standing our own. It makes us less susceptible to peer group pressure. It makes us less susceptible to clans and cliques and uh, such, such, such like. The drawbacks are also fairly obvious. There's something to say about that we have become so so individualistic that we find it hard to team up with each other, that we find it difficult to live together, even with the people whom we love. You know? So our individualism comes at a price. In Buddhist countries, that's maybe one of the few very few differences you find between Asian people and Western people across the board is that generally the identity is less an individual identity, but it is strongly called by group identity, part of a village, part of a, uh, a particular geographical situation, uh, a particular craft or uh, job situation, part of a social stratum, that there is a lot of identity around groups and maybe less identity around me being autonomous. If Western people go to Asia and find out about Buddhism, they bring along their Western goggles. Yeah? They bring along their Western, Western spectacles. And then they look at Buddhism, and what they see, <coughs> they put on their individualist spectacles, and what they see is, lo and behold, an individualist Buddhism. You know, what they see is meditation cushions and lonely mats and caves and the encouragements to stay alone and to roam alone like the, like the rhinoceros and to find empty spaces and meditate under trees. This kind of encouragement they find. And uh, it's not difficult to say why, because obviously that has something to do with what they know. Yeah? That's where they come from. Because when we learn something new, the first thing we understand is always that which we already know. Yeah? We understand of things new. Generally, that part which resembles most what we already know. There's nothing to be said against this. It's just, it's generally not the whole story. It's the starting point. Yeah? If you look at... Uh, People like, say, Thai people with whom I have lived many years of my life, uh, both in Thailand and outside of Thailand, uh, I am conscious that these people have a very different take on Buddhism. Yeah? Their notion of Buddhism is not a, a lonely meditation cushion type Buddhism. Many uh, Thai Buddhists do not meditate. They do not think that they are bad Buddhists, for that matter. They think they have, they have plenty of opportunity to practice their religion, uh, but the exclusive nature of meditation or the exclusive uh, position meditation enjoys in the Western people's mind is not shared by many Thai people. I also don't think they are bad Buddhists for that, just to make it clear. There are many other virtues in the Buddhist uh, faith that uh, bear great fruit in people's lives, just to speak of, say, morality, sila, or to speak particularly of generosity, dana, and its immediate connection between happiness. Yeah, there's an immediate link. I've, coming from a Swiss background where one doesn't speak when one is generous, one certainly doesn't speak about it. Uh, coming to a country like Thailand where people quite proudly say how generous they have been, where they feel not the slightest degree of embarrassment to say how much the things cost that they have brought to the monastery. Or if you ask them what they did, they say, today I have been good, I have been generous. You know? Every Swiss would cringe at such a statement. You know, it's okay to be generous, but for God's sake, make it discreet, don't leave your name, don't tell anybody about it. You know? uh, it's, it feels like boasting. The Thai people have a lot less problems with that. They feel that being generous is something good. And something good is something to be rejoiced at. To be rejoiced in. It's not something to be ashamed at. 
or, or, or ashamed of. It doesn't need hiding. In fact, one way of uh, being unnecessarily uh, uh, timid about the goodness of one's actions in, in Thai language, uh, if we translate it, means uh, to plaster the gold on the back, on the on the, on the rear side of the Buddha statue. Yeah. Imagine you to beautify a Buddha statue. You have uh, leaf gold. Is that what it is called? Yeah. Gold leaf. Yeah. So. If you put it on the rear side of the Buddha, nobody can see it because, as you can imagine, nobody looks at the rear side. It stands generally against the wall. So there is a different attitude, both to communality, to individuality, and say to something very simple as generosity or the capacity to show that one has been good, that one has done good. So if we go back a little further from Thailand, back to the Buddha and see what was the role he gave relationship in his understanding of Sangha, we find a very crucial term called Kalyana Mitta. Kalyana or Kalyanang is a, an adjective and it means a variety of things. It means, for example, good or excellent. Yeah, and the Buddha says, uh, his teaching is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. He uses the term kalyanam. Then we have uh, the term kalyanam as opposed to unwholesome. Yeah? Kalyanam is the wholesome, and unwholesome is papakang, yeah? the unwholesome. Sometimes we are encouraged to discern. There is a stage in meditation practice where we exercise uh, clear discernment, say the discernment of wholesome thought or unwholesome thought, wholesome intention, unwholesome intention. Then the term kalyana means admirable. It means probably closest to what we are about tonight when we speak of the admirable friendship or noble friendship or noble companion, then this is probably the best translation good, noble, admirable companion. And we see that the Buddha encourages noble companionship. In fact, the bedrock of Sangha life, of, in this case, monastic community life, is noble companionship. That's how it starts off. Before there are any rules or regulations, quite long before that, the Buddha encourages noble companionship. And he encourages that because he's quite aware what a profound impact the presence and the role of others has in our lives. And this is contrary to Western individualist conditioning. Yeah? Emancipation of things was a big number in my life. I was trying to get so emancipated from things that it was very difficult for me to actually identify what I wanted once I was beyond having enemies or beyond having things I wanted to get emancipated from. It was quite challenging to actually identify uh, goals in positive, affirmative language. I don't know how your background is, but mine was such that I tried to free myself from all kinds of things, from Christianity, from bourgeois society, from... Uh, control freak society in my home country, from narrowness, from um, all kinds of things. Later, the things that I believed helped me to free from the first things I needed to free myself from in the second round. So, so there was a lot of kind of emancipation going on in my life, and it took quite a while before I actually realized I had a vacuum. I had a vacuum. I found it very difficult to say what I wanted if I didn't have any enemies, it was very difficult to actually state where I wanted to go, what was important, what was relevant in my life. In fact, I found it very difficult to produce energy if it wasn't energy against something. Most of my energy was energy that came from a sense of dissidence. It was oppositional energy. I needed to have something to struggle against. It has taken me years, and I don't exaggerate, it has taken me years to 
find ways to energize my life without having enemies, without having something to fight against, uh, uh, to, to be dissident of, to oppose myself against. Um, not that it isn't necessary to be uh, an opponent occasionally or to be dissident. Or There's a great value in something like critical solidarity or so. But uh, There are things which cannot be gained by... Uh, opposing forces you know there has to be there has to be a, a place where i affirm something that is of value in my life independent of being congratulated for it or being combated for it yeah there has to be a place where you, where we have all of us have to affirm uh, values that need to grow from within our hearts now this has taken quite some time in my own biography Noble companionship, what does that consist of? When the Buddha speaks of noble companionship, and maybe let me start off with this most telling of anecdotes. You may have heard of Ananda, the, one of the great disciples of the Buddha. He was looking after the Buddha for 25 years. He accompanied him. He, he is praised for his famed memory. And his famed uh, sati, in fact, which is credited for being the reason for his good memory. The, his mindfulness was such that his memory was very good. Um, this Ananda, we owe a lot to, because he was not, he didn't feel himself too good to ask stupid questions. So, Because he asked occasionally stupid questions, the Buddha gave great explanations, and we owe a lot to Ananda. Ananda sometimes wanted to show off. He was a bit cocky occasionally, and he um, looked for, like many a disciple will, uh, if he's a bit more confident after being with a teacher for a while, he looks for approval of his teacher by stating what he knows or what he believes. And he states this uh, as his current insight or as his current state of understanding hoping for the approval of the teacher, obviously, to feel better. So Ananda states that, according to his understanding, it was, and he speaks to the Buddha here, that the holy life, that is, monk, that is the monk's life, to him, Ananda, consisted, half of the holy life consisted of noble companionship, consisted of noble friendship. And then the Buddha in one of his classic rebukes, I say, say not so, Ananda, say not so. It is not half of the holy life that consists of noble companionship. It is, in fact, the whole of the holy life that consists of noble companionship. And then goes on and extols the virtues of noble companionship and says that somebody who uh, practices this is likely to develop the Eightfold Path For a monastic community that is at least for part of its uh, monastic year encouraging uh, <laughs> eremitical practices, solitude uh, that encourages talking little, that encourages um, being independent of others, that encourages not... Um, no uh, social pleasures, uh, I think this is quite a statement. Yeah, the acknowledgement of the value of noble relationship as the bedrock for communal life is often overlooked when we read the texts or when we read the anthologies of these texts. Um, it seems that there are bits which we find in these teachings very directly that seem to speak to us Often it is the bits we long for yeah, or we miss most in our lives. And when we do that, we overlook other aspects. The word mita in the term noble companionship from Kalyana Mita is related to the word meta, love, or a, a deep uh, friendliness, affectionate friendliness. And it 
is not by chance the, the case that these are connected. Yeah. The experience of a loving relationship is absolutely crucial to our uh, hum, hum, humanness. And we all know how we can grow in relationship. We all know, how, we all have experienced that if being seen by another human being, we can really be touched. Being seen can enable us to grow in ways we have not thought possible for us. Now, this is nothing dramatically new. I think it is crucial to understand that in Buddhist teaching, at the very heart, we have an affirmation of uh, practice, a notion of practice that has to do with relationship. So much of Buddhist practice, as I see it in the West, is an attempt to sort things out alone, to sort things out individually, to sort things out on a level on which they cannot really be sorted out. Yeah. Whatever you may think of yourself, you will be experiencing relation. I'm speaking here in a quite broad sense. There are many forms of relationship and I, I, I have lived a monastic life. I have lived 20 years of my life as a celibate and I can assure you this is an intensely relational experience. Intensely relational. The major teaching of my monastic life here in the West has been community. It hasn't been meditate, solitary. We have done that. I have done that. I still do that. It's good. It's great. But the the real big experience in this monastic life has been communal. You see, people who end up in monastic communities here in the West are generally individualist people because that's not what their mummies and daddies tell them and it's not what their societies tell them. So people who end up in such communities, they seem to have a, an, an over-average resilience against standards forms of conditioning because otherwise they would do what their parents tell them and what their societies tell them and what their teachers tell them, none of which tell them to become Buddhist monks and nuns. So you end up in a monastic community as an individual, fairly autonomous being together with other fairly autonomous individual beings. And you can imagine that these shardy individuals not necessarily take easily to the, the blessings of communal uh, of a communal lifestyle. Certainly not because part of that communal lifestyle also is not really in the books. Yeah, it's in the books. That's true, but it's not in the mythology of how a monk should live. So it has taken us quite some years to find out that while in our heads we always try to be living independently, but our daily lives consisted of communities all the time. Yeah, it was totally communal. I could only have become a monk here in this country, in fact, because there was a community. This community could only exist because there was a larger community that supported the monastic community. Um, the monastic community could only live because it was preparing, being prepared to give some of its energy to teaching and grooming and accepting and welcoming younger monastic people. Yeah. They take a tremendous amount of work Grooming monks and nuns is very, very labor-intensive job. You can't just kind of wrap them in a robe and then they, there they are, shining in glory. It takes years till they kind of till they can operate, and you need to look after them, teach them, train them, uh, relate to them, find out what's happening with them, look after them, prod, nudge, encourage, exhort instruct all kinds of things. You know that. It's not different for monks and nuns than for children. So all this was intensely relational. And all this was only due to people being willing to do that. If you're not willing to hold relationship and invest in relationship, obviously it's not happening. Yeah. We're not little kangaroos or, you know, who kind of fall out of mommy's womb and then crawl up on mommy's hairy leg into the little bag and find the nipple. You know, that works for kangaroos, but it doesn't work for human beings. We, we are totally dependent when we get born and that stage we only survive because people are committed to look after us, really committed. 
We all have been through that, and that's why we're all here. We wouldn't have survived otherwise. So this noble relationship, a noble friendship, is, is interesting because it doesn't hinge on the usual selective process of friendship. Usual selective process of friendship generally is um, sympathy. I like somebody and I get to know this person better because I like them and uh, we may become friends. Or we like the same things and we do the same things and we become friends in the process. Noble friendship does not necessarily operate that way. It means we affirm something that we see as an aspiration in the other. I give you an example. Again, I have to go back to my monastic experience. I didn't go to these monasteries because I wanted to be with these people. I wanted to be a monk. I didn't individually choose these people to live with. They found something important that I found important. And because we affirmed similar values, we were both at that place, or all of us at that place. Now, some of these people I would never have chosen to live with. And I wouldn't have even sat on a table, down to a table with them because they were so out of my world. In fact, they would only become aware in a monastic context how selective I had previously been in my life. How, how much screening went on before I actually was willing to let somebody into my life. Now, in a monastery, suddenly it becomes obvious how much that screening was exerted before coming to the monastery, because in the monastery it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah? Anybody can go to a monastery if they behave reasonably morally and if they're interested and committed, and if there aren't any big reasons speaking against them, they, could, they can stay there, at least for a while. Some of them even become monks, you know. <laughs> Not because you necessarily like them. And you end up living with them. One year, two year, ten year. Yeah, many years. You end up running institution. And you know what? You may even become friends with them. <laughs> Not because you initially found great sympathy for each other, but because you respect each other. Because you get to know each other. Because you become somebody different in the process of living. And that is a very different quality than choosing people who are like me or whom I like and who fill my carefully uh, crafted criteria of sympathies. And then I elect them to become a bit closer. It has a very different feel to being with people whom uh, one has gone through thick and thin and affirmed uh, values, values that are not difficult for them nor for me to live through. So... There is a, a possibility for relating to other humans that is not based solely on sympathy and like. In the Buddhist teaching on noble friendship, he encourages us to take up such relationship. He encourages us to relate to the aspiration in the other, to relate to that part in the other in which we see an echo of our own aspiration to freedom, to goodness, uh, to happiness, to enlightenment, ultimately. Anybody who relates to that part in me will strengthen my capacity to do that. Anybody who relates to that part in me that wants to grow up, that wants to be free, that wants to be uh, come out of my own ruts and habits and hang-ups. Anyone who does speak to that part in me strengthens that part in me. That's very simple in ways, in, in many ways, and yet it's so, it's so powerful. People can affirm and strengthen aspects of other people. See, I could sit here and cater to your fears. Instead of teaching you the joys about breathing meditation, I could instill fears of hell realms and what's happening to negligent people. Yeah. So, I don't think relating to fears is very 
helpful pedagogical device. It's very effective, as is, as is well documented. You know, generations of teachers of all religions and schools have uh, played to the have played the fear card. Politicians keep doing it. Um, I don't believe in the efficacy of this. I uh, believe that this is not a good way of being with people, uh, triggering their fears, hoping to manipulate them by uh, delivering them to their own fears or even affirming their fears. Um, I have a firm faith that I grow best if people who see, maybe sometimes see better than I myself, what lies in me, that they relate loyally to that part in me that is capable of growth, that is capable of, of, um, of being big, bigger than I am, bigger than I think I am, and who relate to that part that encourages me, that, encourages me, that makes me grow. I am conscious that much of what I have learned is precisely due to that fact that somebody has looked at me and seen there something that I myself haven't yet seen. In fact, I believe that much of my growth has only happened because of this, because there were people who saw more than I could see of myself. Think of children. You know, on one level, they're kind of they're very small and very dependent and not, not very good at things most of the time. You know, they can be very clumsy and very uh, full of wild emotions and undomesticated. And yet, you know, we, we instinctively understand we cannot relate to how they are only. Yeah? We have to relate to them also in what they will become, what they what they will grow into. We see in them a humanity. We don't just see in them a little temper tantrum, you know. Now it's just going to stay forever like that, you know, in a sort of a pathological anger fit, you know. This is, this is your reality. This is what you are and this is probably what you'll ever be, you know. We don't do that with children, even if they believe that themselves for a moment. We, we acknowledge... If we have to savvy, we acknowledge their reality <laughs> and we, we save the crockery and uh, we uh, try to modulate their experience and, you know, down-modulate their intensity. And uh, in the clear view that we can hold something for them which they don't hold for the moment, they have abdicated this. So they freaked out. They let the emotion rip through them and we hold something for them. And this is what we can do not just for little children. This is what we can do for each other. That is very, very powerful and very, very uh, ennobling. And, uh, it is very clear that the Buddha is speaking of that when he speaks of noble friendship. It is ennobling because it allows us to grow. It allows us to grow into something that we may not be capable of holding as a vision for ourselves. He speaks very plainly of this. He says, if somebody is a noble friend to you, he is likely to do several things with you. Let me give you seven qualities of a noble friend. He inspires our love. He inspires our admiration. He inspires our wish to emulate this person, what is, or the quality of this person. That's a very crucial one. Admiration and emulation have something in common. The mature heart looks at something it hasn't realized and admires, is capable of admiring. The not so mature heart sees something it doesn't, it hasn't realized yet, and it's envious, yeah? it's jealous. There's a very great distinction. If you are admiring something, you are likely to resemble that because you recognize that as a quality. A quality that occurs not in your own heart or in your own life, but maybe a quality nevertheless that happens. And you're capable of recognizing this quality for its goodness without construing a self-statement. 
So you leave the goodness with the other. You leave that which you admire with the other and say, well, wow, this is impressive. Yeah. And it's easy to follow that one up with the wish to emulate what you admire. If you look at somebody else and say it's got a quality and you, you don't manage to admire, but you're envious, what, you, what actually happens is you create a self-statement. Rather than seeing the quality and leave it with the other, you construe out of the quality of the other a lack in yourself. You construe a deficiency here. You construe a self that is wanting something. Yeah. That's a very different psychological vantage point. What you do is you affirm a, a notion of self that is deficient in some form. You solidify both the notion of self, which is a non-starter in the first place, and in the second place, you attribute to it the deficiency on top of it. Yeah. So it's doubly unhealthy. Instead, if you manage to admire, if you succeed in admiring, you're very likely to be able to follow up, to emulate that quality. Even if you can't immediately, it still makes you happy because you've recognized something good. That's a very different uh, attitude. So, love, admiration, instills the wish to emulate that quality. The next thing is a good friend is somebody who is capable of listening. Somebody who is capable of giving prof profound advice. Note the sequence here. He doesn't give advice before he listens. He listens first and then gives advice. A noble friend is somebody who is interested in treating profound topics. He's somebody who is interested in deep questions. Yeah. He encourages and inquires and pursues deep subjects in, your, in, in life. And finally, uh, a noble friend is somebody who is always on the guard for, you, for your good. He tries to keep you, not just from active harm, but he tries to keep you from squandering your resources, your energy, your time, your money. Finally, your attention. So he has your good at his heart. He is concerned for your welfare. He keeps you out of trouble. Now, when you ask yourself, well, who, who are my good friends? Where are my good friends? You know, why don't I have more good friends? You know, it would be really handy to have a half a dozen of them, right? So uh, I, I would suggest turn the question around. Not just who is my good friend, but to whom are you a good friend? Yeah, this is not, please be conscious that this is not just something which you would like to have, but also consider to whom could you be that? Are you willing to be such a good friend? Such a good friend needn't wear a robe. It needn't be a teacher. It... Uh, I think it is obvious both from the scriptures and it is obvious from practical experience that often we learn from people with us. So much of our learning happens uh, from the peer group. From I've always found that sometimes that the people can help me more if they're closer to me. I have found some insights of people very close to me, more trenchant and more... Uh, effective for my own process than maybe some insights that have come from somebody farther away. Yeah, sometimes it's a fellow student who knows to help you best because you know the dawn of the university has, has covered that ground a long time ago and when he addresses you it, 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 may not be the, it may not be the easiest for him to reach you exactly where you are although he may have certainly the competence but Actually, the fine-tuning is often done best by people very close to us. So, consider 
These seven qualities again of a good friend, they are not to, they're not well enough known in the Buddhist teaching. And uh, they are, on one hand, precious. On the other hand, they are not so lofty as to be really uh, out of reach. A good friend is somebody who inspires love, admiration, respect, and the wish to emulate. A good friend is somebody who is capable of listening, is capable of giving advice, is capable of treating profound subjects. He encourages you to take up that which is relevant, that which is essential in your life. He helps you in pursuing this. And finally, a good friend is somebody who uh, has your welfare in mind. He helps you not waste time, energy, money, attention, vitality on things that are not worth it. The theme of noble friendship turns turns up in many, many other uh, places in the Buddhist teaching, very straightforward ones in which um, the Buddha uses the analogy how to treat a crazy elephant. A crazy elephant is is being brought to reason and to sanity again by uh, finding two other elephants that are trained. Uh, The trained elephants go to the left and to the right of the crazy elephant and they whisper things in his ear. they, They use their trunk and instill relationship to the to the one gone crazy and calm him down. They do essentially what a mother does with a crying baby. They hold it, they empathize, they modulate, they downregulate yeah, the overwhelming emotion. This time the crazy elephant. It's always the same principle. It starts with empathy, goes to resonance, and then affirms the healthiest part in the other the clearest part, the most, uh, the brightest part in the other. You know? we, as if we, if we sing or if we chant, we just try to keep our note on the brightest, the, the, the bright side of the scale, just to keep, to keep the pitch, so to say. In one of his teachings, somewhere buried deep, deep down in the grouped discourses, the Buddha says <clears throat> there are seven qualities which bring about the arising of the Eightfold Path. You understand the Eightfold Path, is the, it's the Buddhist panacea, it's, it's the Buddhist therapy. After the acknowledgement of suffering, the understanding that this suffering arises from a cause that causes something to do with desire, that this cause can be allayed and thus the arising can be reversed and suffering can be stopped or brought to cessation, the Buddha finally states as his fourth truth, uh, the truth of the Eightfold Path, the truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering or of insatisfaction. And the details, the nuts and bolts of that path, that fourth truth, are the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is an interesting expression because the term Sama can mean two things. It can mean right, as in Samaditi, right understanding, right uh, um, Samasankapa, right intention, Samavaja, right speech, Sama Kamanta, right action, right livelihood, right uh, effort, right mindfulness, right. collectedness of mind um, it can mean right yeah it also can mean complete if the right if the eightfold path is taken in its realization uh, level then it's no longer just right mindfulness and right samadhi and right uh, effort and right understanding and right action and right speech and right livelihood but it's perfect it means perfect or complete understanding, complete mindfulness, complete wisdom, and so forth. So, conditions that bring about the Eightfold Path, (coughs) and this first of those conditions is noble friendship. The very, very first. 
at the head of all conditions that bring about the fruition of that Eightfold Path is the fact that we practice wholesome relationships, that we practice ennobling relationship. That means both give and take. It means that we recognize its value, that we seek it out, and that we offer such companionship to others. Whatever you may think of your degree of realization, I am quite confident that you are capable of noble companionship. Not just at the receiving end, but actually at the, at the giving end. So I would like you to uh, consider these qualities and I would like you to bring some of what I speak into your own lives by uh, pondering, by requesting from you to, that you ponder uh, where do you live such things? Where have you experienced that? And where do you make yourself available to be found as a noble companion? If there aren't places in your life where you can be found and where you experience that, consider how you could make that happen. Consider associating with people on that level, seeking them out or making yourself findable. Consider the virtue of conscious relationship and a relationship that bears, let's turn that around, a relationship that is up to that which you have understood. We all have understood things in our lives. Sometimes it's not just informal practice. Sometimes it's informal practice we gain the energy but the things we understand, we understand them elsewhere. Um, but we have understood things, and those things we need to live, we need to manifest. And sometimes there is a discrepancy between what we know, what we have understood, and what we actually live out, what we manifest in our lives. So we reflect... This is my uh, request from you. Reflect where you lag behind in your relationship. What you know of yourself and of others. Consider how what you experience and what you practice when you meditate can, can be brought more deeply into your relational life. It is possible to learn a lot with other humans, particularly where you are in intimate relationship. This is a fantastic learning ground. And if we uh, learn to relate to that brightest note in the other, if we learn to affirm that in the other which aspires to uh, goodness, to clarity and to freedom, then... Uh, we not just help the other, we also help us because this person is in profound relationship with us. Uh, it's crucial to combine this with a practice of gratefulness. Every Buddhist tradition knows that. So generally in the morning, we start with making it, uh, the wish. We state the wish that we would dedicate our energies to a particular practice. And we end the day by sharing whatever good has accrued from our practice with all those others, all those other human beings who are part of our lives. The people here, the people at home, uh, the people who make it possible that we can be here, uh, the people whom we have learned with, whom we have shared our path, and maybe our teachers, our parents. Uh, we share what we have accrued during a, a day of practicing goodness. We share that with others. So without any big formal ritual, I would like you to, to invite you simply give a few moments of thought to those of, you, those of the people in your lives who stayed behind, who make it possible that you're here, to whom you feel connected, whom you, whom you owe in many ways, the things you know, the things you have uh, understood. Because that knowledge goes back to the, the doing of others. It's not just our own doing.
So take them up, bring them up in your mind for a few moments when we are quiet now for a couple of minutes and uh, be grateful. I thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.